Welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. We're in the Gospel of John. Chapter 4, and we're going to talk today about the importance of power. I'll begin at verse 35. John chapter 4, verse 35. You recall, Jesus, remember this, this is really important, it really puts things in perspective. The, The first four chapters of the Gospel of John describe the first year of Jesus' ministry, and the other three Gospels do not describe this year. Matthew, Mark, and Luke will pick up the story when Jesus returns to Galilee. In other words, where we are in Samaria, another few day, another day or so, he'll be back to Galilee. That's where Luke will pick up. I'll show it to you when we get there. So what you're seeing in the Gospel of John is the first year of his ministry. And we discover that the Lord went down to Jerusalem, cleansed the temple, and then for about eight or nine months, ministered in the villages and towns in Judea. Judea is southern Israel. So he ministered all that period of time. Then, because he was so effective and so many people were coming to to faith in him, he got into political trouble. And the word came to him, they're coming after you, basically. They know what you're doing, they know where you are, and you're in trouble. It was not time for him to be arrested, so he heads straight north, right through Samaria, heading back to the safety, as it were, of Galilee, and, and for, 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 because it's, he is not, he's got some years now, he's got to go. He can't let them arrest him. So on the way, he stops at a place called Jacob's Well. Uh, I've told you, I, Mary and I actually went there in 1970. The well is still there. Uh, and it's, uh, so he's sitting by Jacob's Well. His disciples have gone into town to get food. They're just passing through. This may be first thing in the morning, it may be noon. I don't know which it is, uh, depending on how John, which time frame John is using when he, when he tells us this. But he's there alone. A woman comes out to draw water. He looks up and senses the spiritual moment, that this is somebody that God is working with. So he says, give me a drink. She says, why would you want a drink from my Samaritan bucket? You Jews don't even want to touch stuff we touch. Why would you want to ask for a drink from me? Jesus says, if you knew, who it was who was talking to you, and what the Bible says and promises, you would ask him and he would give you water such that you would never thirst again. It would be in you a a spring welling up of living water. She says, I want the water. He says, go call your husband. She says, I don't have a husband. He says, no, that would be correct. You've had five, and the one you're living with now, you're not married to. She said, sir, I perceive you're a prophet. (laughs) She then asked him a spiritual question. I don't believe it was a diversionary question because he answers her with one of the most profound statements in the Bible uh, on worship. She says, where should we worship? Are the Jews or the Samaritans right? Who's, Who's got this right? And he says, the time is coming when those who worship God, whose spirit, will worship him in spirit and truth. Not here, not there. It won't be about places and temples. It's going to be about walking with him all the time because the spirit of God will fill you. 
And then, and then, then she says, well, the, by now the disciples have come. They're standing there gawking because he's talking to a woman. He doesn't do this normally. You know, he's a, he's a, he's a very proper rabbi. And so she's talking to a woman. They're just standing with the food, you know, wanting him to eat lunch or, or breakfast, whichever it is. And, and finally the woman goes, I'll leave. And she goes into town and begins to tell everybody, come and see the man who told me my history. Never met me in my life. And he, and he, and he nailed it. He, the guy is a prophet. Or is he the Christ? Is he the Christ? In this interim, while she's in town and they're standing around, this conversation that I'm going to read you right now takes place. John 4, Lord, please open your word to us and our hearts to your word. In Jesus' name. He says, he, he's just discussed, and we saw this earlier, that with his disciples. They want him to eat food, and instead he prepares himself spiritually. He will actually fast and take this moment to, to worship and prepare for the ministry that's about to happen. And then verse 35, he says, do you, do, do, not, do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields. They are white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for eternal life. So that he, he who sows and he who reaps may may rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for the, that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Then John describes the results of what happens. He says, from that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all the things that I've done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. Would you say Savior of the world? Savior. Isn't that remarkable? That's a beautiful moment. People generally come to God for one of two reasons. Either their life has ended up in shambles and they're left with no other option, or they find themselves in a situation where the presence of the Holy Spirit becomes so strong that their resistance and confusion melt away and they rush into God's arms. Let me just ask a minute. Did you see the two different kinds? Some people come to, to Jesus Christ when things get so bad they have no other options. It's like, all right, I might as well get saved. You know, they just, I've, I've tried everything else. How many, let's admit it, how many of you are that person? You, 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 were, you more or less had to get driven to it. Go ahead, raise your hands. There, are, there you are. How many, you got invited to some church service or you got tricked into it? Or, yeah, that, yeah that's my story. Uh, <laughs> And, and you ended up there, and the power of God was so strong that in the moment, you got, you got released and changed. And, and maybe I've heard people say, I, I, my hand went up, and I was receiving the Lord, and I didn't even want it up. It's like, you know, I, or I went forward, and I'm thinking, what am I doing? This is insane. Uh, but the power of God came, and you were won by that. How many? Yeah, see, it's both. Yes. God uses both. But I want you to see the second one today. In particular, we're looking at the second one. When the power of God comes, 
When it's strong, it changes the dynamic and people come to faith who you would never have thought will come to faith. All of a sudden, hard, stubborn, all of that melts away and they suddenly can respond when the power of God is strong. All right? In other words, most people turn to God either because they're desperate or because they've been awakened by the power of the Holy Spirit. What Jesus taught his disciples before the crowds of Samaritans arrived at Jacob's well was that they were about to see many turn to God because a miracle would take place. Large numbers of people were going to quickly come under conviction and surrender to God. The time between hearing and believing would be miraculously shortened. To such a degree that those who were presenting the gospel would end up working side by side with those who were helping people receive Jesus as their Savior and Lord. The disciples were about to be part of a quick work. So Jesus was preparing them so they would understand what was happening. And at the same time, he was cautioning them to remain humble in the midst of such amazing fruitfulness. In Judea, Jesus had already begun seeing great fruitfulness. But in the future, that fruitfulness would only continue to increase. And the disciples needed to know why it was happening, and they needed to know how to react when it happened. I mean, in time, we're going to have 15,000 people, you know, listening as he, as he has to array them up a mountain so everybody can hear. I mean, the numbers are going. He's preparing them. They needed to understand that the huge ingathering of souls that would be, begin in a few minutes, was the result of the power of God, and so do we. Let's rehear re this story. This passage, may, when I explain it, you, I think you're going to say, that's cool. But uh, not a lot of people understand this, and, and, and I, God had to show me what I'm showing you today. So here we go. It is very likely that by the time he spoke these words, the crowds of people had already begun walking toward them. In a place where there was no reason to expect such spiritual hunger or openness to Jesus. Large numbers of people had listened to the woman's testimony, dropped whatever they were doing, and were hurrying out to meet him. In that situation, the time span between hearing about Jesus and believing in him became shortened to the point that it nearly disappeared. Let's keep in mind, these are Samaritans. This is not, this is not a group of Jews. The Samaritan people, just in brief, in 721, the Assyrians came in because the 10 northern tribes had been so sinful, conquered all 10 of them, and then took the people and took them all over the ancient world and made them live elsewhere, and then moved foreign people into that land. So there were some Jews left, but for the most part, it's an intermixed group of people. Religiously, they do believe in the five books of Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They believe those are scripture. None of the prophets, nothing else do they believe. Just those five books. They had a temple there on Mount Gerizim. In fact, there's still Samaritans to this day. I suppose yesterday they were sacrificing. They're still doing sheep and goats. They're still sacrificing stuff on that mountain. I mean, it's still going on. Still a group of people called the Samaritans. So there's, there's it's a vestige of it. So this is the group of people. There is no reason to expect a great harvest here. This is a group of hostile people. They don't like Jews. Jews don't like them. I mean, we're just passing through because they happen to be between us and where we want to go. But Jesus is passing through, and he looks at this place, and he says, 
Wow, this is a ripe harvest field. He senses God doing something, and yet his disciples, all they want is lunch. Let's get out of here. Let's get through this place and out. The normal process of preaching to someone and then waiting months or even years for them to make a decision didn't happen in this case. In less than three days, a large number of people from Sychar and the surrounding region believed that Jesus was the Savior of the world. To explain why this was so, Jesus drew attention to his disciples, of his disciples to a promise which began with Moses and was then applied to the Messiah by the prophet Amos. Now, this you need to see, so I want you to see where this stuff comes from. Go with me to Leviticus chapter 26. Many, many of the promises of the Bible begin in the, in, the, in, the, in the covenant of the law. And here in Leviticus, listen to what God says he will do if his people walk in obedience to him. So here we are in 26, and I'm going to start at verse 3. If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments so as to carry them out, then I shall give you rains in their season so that the land will yield its produce and the trees of the field will bear their fruit. Here we are. Indeed, your threshing will last for you until grape gathering, and grape gathering will last until sowing time, and you will thus eat your food to the full and live securely in your land. The, he's saying that the wheat and the barley harvest, which usually are harvested late, late spring, probably March, April, May, that will go all the way to the grape harvest, which is July. So you will still be winnowing wheat from this enormous harvest when it's time to begin picking the grapes and treading those things. And he says you'll be treading grapes clear into the fall season of October, November, when it's time to plow for the next wheat harvest. Your harvest will be so great that they will extend to the, to the next harvest. There won't even be a gap in between them. There will be, if you will walk with me, says God, enormous fertility of the land. Great abundance. Did you hear that? Amen. All right, now I want to show you what Amos does with that promise. Let's go to Amos. Not easy to find him, Amos. Uh, Hosea Joel Amos. Obadiah Jonah Micah. Look at Amos chapter 9. And I'll start at verse 11. Amos picks up what I just read to you, that promise, and then Amos takes it the next step. Amos says that promise will happen when the Messiah comes. And I want you to see that. So verse 11, he says, In that day, Amos 9, verse 11, I will raise up the fallen booth of David, and wall up its breaches, and I will also raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. What's the fallen booth of David? It's the collapsed dynasty of King David. Remember in 586, when the, when the Babylonians came in, the, the, the Davidic dynasty, David's sons on the throne, ended. So there were no more. So his booth, his house, had collapsed. And God says, but I will raise it up. I'm going to bring a son of David. One of, his, one, of his, one of his 
His future generation will rise up. It'll be a humble one out of, out of bare ground. I'll raise that person up, that son of David, and I will put him on David's throne and he will rule forever. Remember this? This is the promise of the Messiah. All right, so Amos says, when Messiah comes, when this son of David comes, look at verse 12, what will happen? Israel will now rise up in strength and they will possess the remnant of Eden. Edom. Edom is basically part of Jordan today. And all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. And here it is, verse 13. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman will overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows seed. You see it? When the mountains will drip sweet wine and all the hills will be dissolved. So Amos picks this up and he says, yes, the time will come when, the, when, the, when one harvest extends clear to the next one, when everybody's in the field together because there's such abundance, that will happen when Messiah comes, that great fertility. Now I want you to see what Jesus does with it. Let's go back to John 4. Are you, are you with me? You're, 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 you're going to see a beautiful promise emerge. Now just bear with me. All right, uh, where did I end up here? Okay, Jesus didn't quote the passage word for word, but he pictured the scene that Amos described so accurately that his disciples would have easily recognized the prophet's familiar statement. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman will overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows seed. The Messiah would bring with him the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, what you're watching, what you're about to watch here in Sychar, this great gathering of souls, is a fulfillment of what Amos said would happen. Only what Amos didn't tell you is that the fertility, the abundance, the great harvest that will come when Messiah comes isn't primarily about fertility of the land. It's going to be a harvest of souls. And you will have a harvest that's way outsized. You will have this abundant in gathering. When I come, I am the Messiah. And he says, he's explaining to them, and I'm here now. And that promise is at work. And you can expect miracles wherever I am, wherever I'm preached. This miraculous harvest is promised. It still is. Whenever Christ is present, whenever he is properly proclaimed and the power of the Spirit comes, this breakthrough is ours. You and I have to get this in our brains. Because we, we, we're, we're, as it's though we're standing at Jacob's well. With, there's only six disciples at this point, as far as I can see. Peter, Andrew, James, John, Philip, uh, Nathaniel, and Philip. Those are the six that are there. He's explaining this to them and it's as though we're there with them. He's telling us, Wherever I go, that promise is at work. All right. The Messiah would bring with him the power of the Holy Spirit that would re result in an amazing harvest of humans. He told them what they were watching take place uh, there in Sychar was an example of that prophecy coming to pass because he, the Messiah, was present and because the power of the Holy Spirit was at work. They were about to watch a rapid and unreasonably large ungathering of people into God's kingdom. Later on, he would illustrate the same truth by providing two miraculous catches of fish at the Sea of Galilee. Remember this? He says, now cast your nets on the other side. Bloop, in they go. And what happened? They suddenly got so many fish, they're sinking the boats. And he then says, and I will make you 
fishers of men. You following this? There is no thinking in Jesus' mind that we will not have great numbers of people come to him. If he's proclaimed and if we wait on the power of God. That, but, you know, I say that if, but people don't know how to do this. Pentecostal pastors don't know how to do this. You hear people talk about power all the time, but there is none. It's just talk. It's just, you ask, you ask a lot of these pastors, they can't minister the baptism of the Spirit. They don't know how to do it. They don't know how to pray for the sick. They don't know, they don't know how to wait on the presence and power of God. They understand it, must, it exists. They believe it exists, but they don't know how to function in it, and so do many of us. You and I, let me tell you, we are in a, we are in a darkening time, are we not? You cannot function from here on out with a philosophical religion. You cannot function on doctrine. You cannot function on simply telling truth. You, we need power. We need him to show up. He can go into Samaria, a place that's full of hard people who don't even like Jews, and he can have the entire city believing in he, that he's the savior of the Lord in two days. When that promise is at work. And so can we. Amen. There are places that are hard. Places that you give up on. Places you think never. And God can go in there. As he guides us. And when the power comes. And you and I can see things happen. That are mind boggling. And we need it. Now more than ever. Last point. It's worth hearing. Having reminded his disciples that they should expect unusual responsiveness because he, the Messiah, had come, he went on to caution them not to become proud. He was sending them to reap a harvest they had not sown. Much work had previously been done by others to prepare the Samaritans, and for that matter, the Jews, to believe in Jesus when they met him. He said, I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Paul said the same sort of thing to the Corinthians when he said, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. Both Jesus and Paul are reminding us that each one of us has only a limited part to play in the saving work of God. By the time someone is saved, God has used many people to, and events to prepare that heart to receive him. Can you say amen to that? In this case, in verse 38, in this case, Jesus did not tell them who it was who had previously labored among the Samaritans. Moses had influenced them by writing the five books of the Torah that they considered scripture, but we have no way of knowing who else he means. Yet the point of his comment is to put the miracle they were about to experience into perspective. They were going to see an enormous number of people believe in Jesus in a very short period of time, but they must not allow themselves to become proud. They must remember that they were reaping a harvest which, they, which had been planted by others and which God himself had ripened. So the glory for the evangelization of Sychar belonged only to him. Now notice something. He doesn't do this everywhere. He's spotted in the spirit the ripe harvest in Samaria. Every place is not the same ripeness. Every place is not the same ripeness. But he led by the Lord, saw the ripeness there. And then John describes what I told you, this enormous gathering. Is it any surprise that as we get into the book of Acts, after Pentecost, a man by the name of Philip the Evangelist went to 
Samaria and had a huge number of people uh, being healed and saved and baptized. Remember this? Acts chapter 8. It's no surprise, is it? All this has already gone on. And then when, when Philip the evangelist got them baptized, got them saved, he for some reason did not have the ability to minister to them the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So Peter and John came from Jerusalem to make sure that everybody was fully Pentecostal. He laid hands on them for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They already knew these people. They'd already been there. They spent a couple of days. This is only about six to nine miles away. And there's a little, if you go on Google Earth, you can follow the track through the olive trees between this and where, where Jesus, or Philip the Evangelist, was ministering in Sebastian, the capital. So these are all, there's relationship here. Is it any surprise that Jesus will tell the story about a good Samaritan? He loves these people. This is family now. Okay. Let's try to put in our own words what Jesus taught his disciples that day. It's important to remember that what he taught them is just as true for us. If we had been standing there beside them, here's what we might have heard. Number one, don't disqualify a group of people in your mind because of your prejudices. God is at work ripening every field, so you need to be constantly watching for what God is doing. You didn't recognize that you were standing in an area that is ripe for spiritual harvest. You would have eaten a meal and left. First of all, he's, he's pointing out, you didn't see it at all. You didn't see it at all. You were here, you would have eaten a meal and gone right on and left all these souls. You've got to wake up and see God at work in people you don't like. Is it any surprise that they didn't see Samaria as a ripe harvest field? They're just thinking, how, how fast can we get through this? Isn't, isn't it, don't we all do this? Oh, Lord, give me souls. No, not those. I, I want, we picture in our mind what we want, don't we? We overlook children. We overlook youth. We overlook people who are different than us. We overlook the elderly. We overlook sick people. We, over, we overlook all sorts. Of, I don't want that. Who cares what you want? Where's the harvest? Doesn't matter what you want. You aren't the one who ripens it. The Father ripens this. You're a laborer in his field. And if he says, this is where we're going, this is where we're going. Last year, we had a team... Uh, this, this medical team and some, a bunch of you went to Niger. Again, I didn't know where Niger was. I do now. Pray for it. They had 469 Muslims, one at a time, give their life to Christ. 469. That's a ripe field. That, that, in fact, and they're going back to that area and to another nation nearby. Why? Because it's such hard. Who would have thought that? One of the poorest nations on the planet. 97% Muslim. And you and I have brothers and sisters we'll rejoice with in heaven forever. As it was a ripe harvest field, it still is. You see what I'm saying? You can't use your brain. You follow the Spirit. Lord, who are you ripening? And if you and I wake up to that, there are people all around us if we'll put our prejudices aside, if we'll put all that aside, ready to come to God. Yep. Wherever I, I, says Jesus, 
go, or wherever I am proclaimed. A great prophetic promise is at work. The Holy Spirit, if welcomed by faith, will shorten the time required for the human heart to believe and surrender. Hard hearts will suddenly melt, and stubborn rebellion will collapse in tears. And the number of people who respond will be much larger than you had any reason to expect. Number three, don't grow proud when you have the privilege of ministering with great results. You are only one part of a process. God was at work through many others long before you arrived. And after you leave, there will be those who gather the grain, place it in barns, and winnow the wheat from the chaff. God is the only constant influence. He alone deserves the glory. There is no place for pride, only joyful amazement. Why does he do that? Because if you and I get proud, if those, if those disciples of his begin to go, we are good, we are so good, nobody else has done this stuff, what a bunch of deadheads. If, what happens? Thwomp, it's all gone. Pride just kills everything. You constantly have to tend your heart when God uses you and just say, it is so you, Lord Jesus. And mean it. Mean it from the heart. Just constantly going, Lord, what's happening is amazing. It is wonderful. I rejoice in it. But I am just a handmaiden. I am just a servant in the hand of God. You are the one who's at work doing these things. You understand? That keeps us usable. So he was teaching them so they would stay usable. So did we hear our coach? He said, you and I need to stay spiritually alert and watch for what God is doing. Remember that it is only when we present Jesus that the miracle takes place. It is not true just because of you. It is not true because you've got something right. It is only true, this promise only comes to play when Jesus is lifted up. Wait for the power of the Spirit. Expect supernatural results. And stay humble when it happens. The importance of power. Now let's talk about God's power. You can do everything else right, but if it's not there, nothing happens. You can talk about it, believe in it, and pray for it, but if it's not there, nothing happens. It's not something we can control. It is something we can only seek and wait for until it comes. What is it? Or rather, we should ask, who is it? It's the active, tangible presence of the Holy Spirit, which at times can become so strong that we can actually feel something or observe Him at work. How many would say, I know I have felt the presence and power of God. It isn't emotionalism. I didn't get worked up. I know God was there. Look at, there, look at how many. It's very real. It's, it's so important. What I'm telling you is not... You get a hold of this, Please. It is not psychological. It, you can pump up a crowd emotionally. Give me a J, give me an E, give me an S, you know, this kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah Jesus! And I don't even know that that's wrong, but it's not the same thing as the Spirit. That's what you and I have to know. The Holy Spirit, in fact, emotionalism can get in the way of the Spirit. It can replace the spirit. People can sit there because they've been worked into a froth and think they're in the spirit, and they're not. They're just worked up. You've got to distinguish between it. The spirit of the Lord is a person, and when he's present, you know it. And, and I, I, 
I would, it's like a, there's, a, there's a warmth in the room. There's a person in the room. Something's happened to the place. Something's happened to you. You can sense him when he's strong upon you. And you can sense yourself when you're not. We're very different. It's, this is one of the most mature things you must learn. You must learn to be discerning. Is he really here and at work? And then you and I, as disciples of this Jesus Christ, we don't ever want to work without that power. We don't ever want to produce religious stuff. We don't ever want to concoct something or deceive something. We always want his work, to, his power to go before us. But when God's power arrives, human efforts to serve God by themselves can be well-intended, but very limited in what they accomplish. But when God's power arrives, those results change dramatically. And it is this power that's so often lacking when someone is preaching and everyone's bored. Don't say a thing. Or <laughs> ministering and the experience feels hollow and empty. Have you had people pray for you? And you think it was very nice, but nothing happened. It was just a, like a Hallmark card. It was very sweet. Very nice sentiment. Yeah. No, I'm not knocking Hallmark cards. They, you, you, I, I didn't. Anyway, move on. Everything can, everyone can intuitively sense that something is missing. That's what's taking place. What, that what's taking place is merely humans trying to say or do the right things without being self-righteous or critical of others. That's not the point of this. Without sort of saying, well, that person, that, we must be aware and discerning. Is this simply a good religious attempt? But God's really not at work very much. Or is he here? And by the way, he, he doesn't seem to have any kind of taste. God will show up in the most awkward situations or the most, in the places you think you should not be here. <laughs> and other times when you think, oh, he should so be here, he doesn't seem to think so. I've been in tents with bark chips on the floor, and I've been, I've been in, you name it, my, my mother would take us to the wildest sorts of places. And sometimes half of what is, is just nonsense, but on the other hand, God seemed to show up, and you know, stuff was happening. You know, it's up to him. You must watch for his presence and wait, wait for his presence. When we proclaim Jesus Christ or pray for the sick, or help someone receive the baptism in the Holy Spirit, or engage in some type of spiritual warfare, the outcome will be decided not so much by what we say or do, but by whether or not God actually shows up. And if he does, everyone knows it. And what they sense in that moment is not emotionalism. It is not psycho a psychological state someone has manipulated. You can do that, but that's not what we're talking about. It's a phenomenon as real and touchable as the temperature in the room. You can't see it with your physical eyes, but you can observe what it's doing. And in some way, which is hard to describe, you can feel it. It might feel like a warmth or electrical energy or a soft gust of wind or a beautiful perfume or being near someone who loves you. Have you sensed those things? You've seen those things? Many in our culture have been taught that they must not believe in a spiritual realm. So when this presence arrives, they are often shocked and may recoil in fear. Some may invest, invent all sorts of psychological explanations for what just happened to them because in their view of reality, this isn't possible. 
But the honest ones, the courageous ones, will in time admit that God visited them and began to adjust their thinking about reality. It is really interesting to watch atheists get into the power. They, they freak. I mean, I've often seen people just get terrified. They did not expect this. They, you know, they, in their judgment, all of the, everything we do is just sort of some kind of psychological or emotional uh, you know, foo-foo, and here we are, we're just all pumped up into a fr- fr- frenzy. And then they get somewhere, and he shows up. And <laughs> oh, you know, I watch people just, you know, they either get soft and start crying, or they want to get out of there so fast, they, you, know, you, you think their hair was on fire. They had not expected him to show up. And it just awakened everything. Preparing for the Spirit. There beside Jacob's well, Jesus taught us that we must partner with the Holy Spirit if we want to see miraculous harvests. So what must we do if we don't want to rely on our own human efforts? How do we position ourselves so God's Spirit can perform His wonders among us? There are undoubtedly many more insights that could be added to this list, but here are a few that are essential. As a disciple of Jesus Christ, each of us must, number one, make a deep commitment that we will never minister apart from God's power. That's a decision you make. And it's a decision to pay the price. To pay the price. First of all, let me talk about this. You, you learn to literally prepare a place for ministry. You prepare yourself, and, or you, and you even prepare a place. For example, if we were going to have a, a, a service for, to minister the baptism of the Holy Spirit, we will have a, our team come in, and they will begin at least an hour beforehand, and they'll begin to worship, and they'll begin to pray. This room has, has ha- often had people in here who will, are literally going from chair to chair, laying hands on the chair, just walking through the room, praising the Lord. Sometimes we do it all together. Sometimes individuals just praying wherever they are. What are we doing? We are warming the room. You can sense when the Lord's sweetness, that presence begins to come in there. You can also sense when he's not. Now, now, let me tell you, whether or not you really understand what I'm saying, you may think, honey, when he puts his head down, let's run. I, you, can, you can call me crazy if you want to, but see this. You, have you ever been house shopping or apartment shopping? You went to, you go walked into some, and you went, how fast can I get out of here? I don't know what happened in here, but I don't ever want to come. Right? You've walked into places and it's just a, it's just a kitchen and a, and a living room and you couldn't get out of there fast enough. Correct? You were feeling the Spirit. And you've also walked into places and you suddenly felt very peaceful and very comfortable. And it wasn't the decor. It was the place, wasn't it? You felt this. This isn't me being a space cadet. This isn't, I'm not being silly. It's, this is human experience. We all understand this. We know what it is to walk in some place or even drive through a part of town and go, whoa. And another place where it's, man, it's sweet here. Right? You're sensing the spirit. You have since you were a child. These things are real. It's not make-believe. It is not silly. This is what Jesus is working with. So as you and I, as men and women of, of disciples of Christ, we learn to say, 
the fact that we can actually, through worship and prayer and preparing ourselves, have his mighty presence come. We know that it's our birthright to have the Spirit. Know that? Not just once in a while, I hope God will show. You and I have every right to expect that every time we minister, every time we step into something he's assigned us to do, he will come with his power. That's our right. It's given to us. And we must get deliberate about that and say, I will not, I will not. If you don't go with me, I don't go. If you don't show up, I'm not showing up. And then, and then I learn to worship and prepare a place, and I learn to prepare myself. In worship, and may I add this, in holiness. Now, I'm not, I'm not a prude, but I walk real carefully in my own personal life. Amen. Very carefully. Why? It's not prudishness. I have to have the Holy Spirit. And if I begin to grieve him, if I begin to get myself, if I do things that make me ashamed, it, it dampens the presence of God in me for a season. I, I, I'm ashamed of him I, to come into his presence. I, it's hard for me to pray. I can't sense him. I maintain that and watch that. I'm not boasting. I'm telling you how I function all the time. This, this past week, you know my mother passed away. All right, I've been kind of down. Uh, I, didn't, I haven't cried at all or anything like that, but I've been kind of sad and kind of weary, physically weary for some strange reason. I said to my wife, am I grieving? She said, in your own way. And <laughs> I said, I was hoping I wouldn't, you know. Anyway, uh, but what, what, what did I do? Friday, I, uh, I have got to fast. I have got to fast. I fasted breakfast and lunch. Uh, and just tea and, and water, just going through the day and, and being with him, praying with him. I had some work to do. I had some things to do, but I'm, I'm fasting. What am I doing? By the afternoon, by the afternoon, that thing had, that lifted. I, fa I fasted it off. I mean, I, I pressed into his presence, and he got that heaviness and that sadness off. You can do this too. And as you learn to be a man and woman of God, where you're moving in these things, this will become part of your life, not because you're pietistic, not because you're sort of religious, not because you're one of those, but because you need his power. And you simply begin to make it part of life. Uh, understand that preparing for power is a process that may vary in length and intensity depending on the situation, but will usually require such forms of preparation as intercessory prayer, that means praying for people, Supplication, that means asking God. S fasting, worship, praying in the Spirit, spiritual warfare, and even physically cleaning a place before we begin to minister. You can have places that are still contaminated, just dirty, just filthy. You clean them up. Four, watch for God to initiate and lead all ministry. Notice the word initiate. He alone knows what that person needs to hear and when they are ready to receive. If we lead, the entire process breaks down. Ex Number five, expect miraculous results. When God initiates and the power shows up, amazing things will always happen. And number six, never lose perspective and think that we caused such wonderful results. We must remember that God was at work long before we arrived and that he will continue working long after we leave. 
Joyful thanks is our proper response for the privilege of ministering in the power that comes only because we belong to Jesus. Great expectations. This passage is full of great expectations. Jesus was preparing his disciples for supernatural levels of fruitfulness. If they followed his example, they too would share in his promise that the power of God would bring people to faith in strange, difficult places, in brief periods of time, and in unreasonably large numbers. And Jesus would say the same things to us today. As his disciples, if we will follow his example, the power of God can still reach people in strange, difficult places like Seattle. <laughs> you can pray the spiritual climate, not only of a house or a place or a room or your family or you, but you can begin to push back the oppressive atmosphere of a community. In years ago, Mary and I went to a, a, a place, it was an island nearby, and uh, we'd come up from well, with just our one daughter is all we had at the time, and we'd come here to be the pastors of this, a little five families in a rec room, and uh, our first business council meeting was in the back of a pickup truck with a canopy. I mean, you know, just hunched under the thing in the rain. And one of the council members said to me on our first council meeting, he said, "Brother, he said this place is called the Rock for good reason. He said it's hard ground, brother." I thought to myself, why in heaven's name did I come here? Oh, Lord God, how do we get out of here? The Lord wouldn't let me out, which is typical. <laughs> and, and, and then he, he, what, here's what he taught me. He says, you get a group of people who know how to pray, and you start praying. And so we did every week. I had a group of 10, 12 people, sometimes even as many as 20. Those were spiritual people. And we began to really pray over our community. Have you ever felt it? It's like a lid is over, the, like a heavy weight. Seattle's got a humdinger. I mean, it's, <laughs> you, you, in, in this particular place, we actually broke the lid. Here, it just comes right on back. But you can push it back. And Do you notice when we worship? You can literally sense that spiritual oppression just push back in the presence of the Lord. This is something you learn as you mature in the Spirit. You begin to watch these things. Well, we prayed that thing back. What happened? It took about a year to two years of that regular, consistent intercession over that place and then worship over that place. The churches all began to grow. There came a real move of God, an amazing work of God. We began to all gather as churches at the high school one, once a month and on, a, on a Sunday after, evening. We'd, have, we'd, we'd pack the, the, the high school commons. Uh, 500, 600 people would come. We would, and we wouldn't have invited guest speakers, you know, with the ta-da. It was just us. And we would come together worshiping and we would come and somebody would preach and we would minister one another and take an offering for, for the needs of our island and where we were. God began to move powerfully in all kinds of churches. Ours grew from 40 to 400 in four years. How's that for a rock? Rock my foot. It was fertile ground when he got done with it. When he got, when you prayed that lid off, but historically it had been the rock. We can do the same here. 
If we, if we get it, if we get what he's saying, we can do the same thing here. You can just, and, and frankly have been doing this. But that's what God, when he says, I want you to pray more. I have more to do. I need a bigger base of prayer. So we begin to obey him. And as you do that, you just push it back. You just push it back. And then suddenly people who, who never thought they were interested in God, people who thought all kinds of crazy stuff, as that presence comes, they begin to soften and become hungry for the Lord. If we will follow his example, the power of God can still reach people in strange, difficult places, in brief encounters, and in unreasonably large numbers. If we will listen to him carefully and let his words sink into our hearts, never again will we be able to look at a situation and feel defeated. Do you hear that? Instead, we watch for his leadership, wait for his power, and expect a great harvest. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.